Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. This hour, a professor has studied how women communicate with their health care providers. She discovered many often find it difficult to fully express their medical conditions. Also, we'll hear about schools finding new ways to share. There's an effort to change how reading is taught, and we'll visit with one educator working on a plan. Also, a school district came up with a way to get kids to school and provide them some exercise. If you think thrifting is something only older generations do, stick around. We'll visit with a high school thrifting club. An award-winning writer has been spending time covering a central Illinois high school girls basketball team, and he's written a book about his experience. And we'll also travel to the area that is the setting for the book and movie, Killers of the Flower Moon. Those stories and more are still to come here on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Schools have a lot to offer. Classes, special education programs, sports, support for mental health, and so much more. But what about small schools that can't offer everything? Many smaller, often rural schools resort to one of the first lessons they teach, sharing. Peter Medlin reports. Jennifer Wold starts her day teaching exploratory and intro to agriculture at the Leland School District, a small rural district in LaSalle County, and she teaches both middle and high school. Then, after a few classes, she gets in her car and drives six miles east to teach more high school ag and advise the FFA club at the Samanac School District. Wold is a shared teacher, and she wears both a Leland and Samanac lanyard to prove it. It's interesting because it's seven minutes apart, but it's a, it is a completely different dynamic. Shared teacher setups like this aren't very common, but Leland and Samanac already work together, so it made sense. They share sports teams and a food vendor. In fact, Leland and Samanac almost completely consolidated last year. The districts also share classes, like agriculture, so when Wold comes to Samanac, so do some of her Leland High School students. In fact, students from a third district, Sandwich, also come to Samanac for ag. It allows those districts to offer their students classes like plant science, food science, and ag mechanics that they otherwise couldn't. Class sharing does happen more frequently at smaller, often rural schools. Tim McConnell is the principal at Erie High School, a northern Illinois school about 20 minutes from the Mississippi River. They've had a sports co-op with nearby Prophetstown High School since the late 90s. But five years ago, they expanded the co-op to include everything, sports, activities, and academics. McConnell says the decision made a lot of sense for both sides, especially considering one factor. Well, our school enrollments, both in Prophetstown and in Erie, are steadily declining. So when I came here 22 years ago, as the principal, we were at 250, and now we're down to 190. The districts build their schedules together, so if an Erie student wants to take a class that their school doesn't offer, they can take it at Prophetstown, and vice versa. They both offer dual credit opportunities students at either district can take. McConnell says as enrollment at districts like Erie shrink, and it becomes more difficult to hire certain teaching positions, arrangements like this are going to become even more common. This type of education is going to only have to expand or, you know, students are going to be left without. And so people need to get on board with it and not be afraid of it. It's easy to do if you, you know, have the passion to get it done. Brian Dukes is the superintendent of the Earlville School District in LaSalle County. And he says collaboration is one of the most valuable tools he has in education. He'll borrow a good idea from anywhere. 
Earlville works with other districts on curriculum and various school programs. They also share school support staff with neighboring districts. For example, they've had a hard time filling their school psychologist position. So now they share a psychologist with two other districts. The district also shares a school resource officer and a special education coordinator, too. Duke says it allows them to maintain high-quality services and save some money. I think it's very likely there's going to come a time in the next two or three years that we're going to have to share teachers with other districts. Back in Samanac, Jennifer Wold agrees that sharing teachers can be a great opportunity for certain school districts. But in her own experience, there are some drawbacks. Last year, I had to work spring break because Leland and Samanac spring break did not match up. And because I'm the only shared employee, no one, it's almost like sometimes that gets forgotten. This year, she will at least have a spring break. Well, Maybe not a whole spring break because of FFA. I got it this year. Yeah, I'm going to run a contest, but that's my fault. And sometimes she feels torn between districts, like she's not 100% a part of either. She has to miss staff meetings moving between schools, but thankfully has co-teachers in both spots to keep her in the loop. And she feels like, even though it's not a perfect system, it does increase her ability to create unique and meaningful education experiences for her agriculture students at all our schools. I'm Peter Madlin. Educators in Illinois have a January deadline to draft a plan to improve how reading is taught. The effort by the Illinois State Board of Education is part of a national movement to update reading instruction so it matches what science says about the way kids learn. Tanea York helped write the first draft of Illinois' literacy plan with educators around the state, and she joined Mary Dixon to talk about that plan and what's driving it. So first off, why does Illinois need to have this literacy plan? Well, the children in Illinois are not reading well, particularly black and brown children. And and what is the issue with the way that they're taught reading right now? So across many of the classrooms um, in the state of Illinois, we used a method of teaching, which some will call whole language, um, where there wasn't really a methodical way of teaching letter sounds, words, um, spelling patterns, that were missing in the instruction that children were receiving. So um, because the whole language wasn't working for them, um, wasn't working for all of them, there's a need to to change up. Is that correct? Absolutely. Um, it is really that most children, most of us, period, need to learn how to read in a very methodical way. There mm. are some, some folks who can learn to They'll learn whole words, right? But most of us, and learning in a more methodical, systematic way doesn't hurt anybody. So that was one of those things that was really, really missing um, in our reading instruction. A lot of us might be familiar with phonics. Um, that's how I learned how to read, I think. Uh, it teaches reading based on the sounds that the letters represent. So how does phonics fit into the way that things might be changing? So that is that piece that is the shift that we need to make. So, of course, there are lots of components and ways that we need to learn how to read, right? Folks need to be read aloud to, they need vocabulary instruction, fluency, uh, phonemic awareness, right? They need to be able to manipulate the sounds and the smallest units of sounds and words. But the phonics component is just one area that uh, the state of Illinois is saying, you know what, there's a lot of evidence that we need to make sure that this component is taught in very explicitly, very direct instruction, and very systematically. 
And so the way that you learned how to read, when you said, I think I learned how to read with phonics, you <laughs> may have, depending on your age, right? Yep, yeah, you, you know. got those books. Um, <laughs> I won't tell anyone. Um, would be a, a very important part that gets reintegrated into the ways that we want children to learn how to read here in the state of Illinois. So with any change, there tends to be pushback. Are people saying what they're concerned about with this with this effort to to change the blueprint? So what you will hear most um, and what I've heard most is when we talk about how to teach children how to read, uh, if we bring up phonics, um, sometimes what folks kind of envision is classrooms where children are just sitting there getting a kill and drill, uh, tons of worksheets, and that we end up missing um, some of the pieces that are really critical, you know, environmental print and kids playing with language. And that's not what we're talking about um, at all. Uh, some of the push comes to make sure that the ways that we're asking folks to teach reading may impact some of our English learners. So there was not everyone in the room is, right, we're all on the same page and we mm -hmm. say, hey, our children need to learn how to read. Like, it's really not happening in our state. But people are a little concerned with the how. And that's always going to be the case. That's veteran educator Tanea York speaking with Mary Dixon about Illinois' new literacy plan. Central Illinois native Dave Kindred has seen a lot of wins and a lot of losses during his long career as an acclaimed sports writer. But the loss of his wife, Cheryl, after a long illness, was the most difficult of all. That coincided with the award-winning journalist's retirement gig, writing about the Morton High School girls' basketball team. He may have heard about that when Kindred was profiled in 60 Minutes, about his time with the Lady Potters. Dave Kindred compiled all of this into his latest book, My Home Team, a sports writer's life and the redemptive power of small-town girls' basketball. He talked with correspondent Randy Kindred about the book, which is part memoir. When I retired, so to speak, and moved back to Illinois, I found out that I couldn't retire. You know, so I went to a basketball game, a girls' basketball game, and I had a girls' high school basketball game. I had never seen one. I went there and discovered that I couldn't I could not sit in the grandstands, could not sit in the bleachers at a basketball game and not want to write about it. So I started writing about it that day. That you were lured in by a pretty high price, a box of milk duds was the uh, the offer that you got to to start writing for a blog uh, on the on the Morton Lady Potters, and uh, it's still that's that's the only pay that you get, isn't it? Well, about four years in, I had a conversation with the webmaster Dave Byrne. I told him, "Look, I'm I'm a I'm a professional sports writer. I've been doing this for fifty years. I should be getting something for this," and he considered my experience and my good looks and said, how about a box of milk duds every game? I said, deal. So I've, over the years, have eaten maybe 300 boxes of milk duds, which accounts for my weight gain. After you wrote a uh, book about uh, your grandson and his life and his ultimate death and his addiction, uh, you said, my next one is going to be, uh, Cheryl will be a big part of the next one. Cheryl was your wife who, uh, who passed away. Uh, was that important to you to be able to kind of let people know who she was and give them a sense of, uh, of your relationship with her and, and what she meant to your whole uh, 
not just your life, but your career as well. Absolutely. I, I could not have done what I did without her uh, going along for the ride. The book, the, the title says, and the redemptive power of small town girls basketball. And that refers to the time that my wife had a catastrophic stroke, became an invalid who could not communicate. She was in a nursing home in Morton for five and a half years. And during that time, the girls' basketball gave me gave me a life, you know, and gave me friends, gave me a community that I really had never had and probably would never have had, uh, except they all knew what was happening in my life, and they they wanted to help me through that. And I think just the mere fact of of having something to do, something to write, you know, writers write, and I could not I, I could not have got through that eight years really of my wife's sickness and eventual death without that without that uh, release. Maybe when Cheryl had the stroke, you, you talked in the book about uh, all of a sudden you started getting texts one after another from, I think, first Bob Becker, the Morton girls coach, and then many of his players. Um, and could you just describe that moment? Because there, there's a special twist to that. We went to the hospital it was it was life and death for two or three days when it was clear that she was going to live uh, still unconscious you know I sent a note to Bob Becker the Morton coach I think I was supposed to go to a game next game I told him I couldn't be there and I told him why and about a half hour later I started receiving uh, texts from the players Chandler Ryan Brandy Bisping and each of the texts would be announced on my phone by a harp music. Uh, and, I, and I counted it as the sound of angels speaking to me. You know, and I think I asked Chandler Ryan once how that happened because she was like the senior that year and she was the, the leader of that team. And I, I suspect that she told all the girls you know, that they needed to speak to me. And they all did, and it meant a lot to me. One part of the book that um, was pretty poignant for me is when, and I can't remember which player it was, you describe how she, I think she was really down when she came out of the locker room and she's got tears. And uh, you, you said you did something you had never done as a sports writer. You gave her a hug. and uh, But you said in the book that she didn't realize that you needed her more than she needed you at that point. That was Cassidy Sherman. She was a senior that year. And I had talked to her before that game. Uh, it was a game they had won three straight state championships. They were playing Peoria Richwoods in a sectional championship game. At Chillicothe, the the gymnasium was packed, you know, to maybe to maybe twenty five hundred people, uh, as big a crowd as I'd ever seen in a in a high school gym. And Richwoods that year was very good. Morton was still very good, uh, but Richwoods blew them out that day. Richwoods beat them by twenty, so it was a it was a hard night for them. She thanked me. She came to me crying and thanked me for what I had done f- through her time in high school. And as you said, it meant more to me. She didn't had no idea what it meant to me to be able to be there and for her to care that much. You broke down the book into to three acts, basically. Act one was your your sports writing career, and then act two was when you returned home and uh, 
everything that happened and then getting involved with the Lady Potters and covering them. And I thought it was interesting for Act 3, you just said it's like any any Act 3, it's a mystery waiting to be solved or something like that's, that. That's it's, what we're doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> this is part of Act 3. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, will the Lady Potters continue to be, will they be part of Act 3, you think? Yes, I mean, they will. The, I'll... I'll I'm looking forward to this season. You know, that'll be my 14th season. Last year was their worst year since I've been here. I think I think they were 19 and 19 and 11. <laughs> you know, most girls teams that would be a pretty good season. I'm looking forward to this. This year they'll be better. They'll be better than they were last year. Becker is very good at making them better all the time. So I'm looking forward to it, and I have no plans to to quit doing it until something happens that tells me I'm just too old to do it. You know, I've been the girl's grandfather. Maybe I'm on my way to being their great-grandfather, and maybe that's time to quit. We'll find out. That's Central Illinois native Dave Kindred. His new book is titled My Home Team, A Sports Writer's Life and the Redemptive Power of Small-Town Girls Basketball. It chronicles his time covering the Morton High School Lady Potters. He spoke with correspondent Randy Kindred. By the way, the Kindreds recently found out they are third cousins, both from the central Illinois town of Atlanta. Coming up, we'll head to the setting of the best-selling book and new movie, Killers of the Flower Moon. That's on the way. We're back on Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Killers of the Flower Moon, it was a best-selling nonfiction book about the brutal murders of Osage Indians for their wealth and land. Now it's a blockbuster movie, directed by Martin Scorsese and starring Lily Gladstone and Leonardo DiCaprio. And the community where many of the murders took place is wrestling with how to open up about its painful past. Harvest Public Media contributor Allison Herrera takes us to Fairfax, Oklahoma. Dr. Carol Connor knows downtown Fairfax, population 1100, like the back of her hand. So a few years ago, it really started catching her attention when she would see cars parked in front of the historic Tall Chief Theater. And so I would be driving down our main street, which is mostly vacant of cars, and there would be a Volvo or a Lexus. Carol is a little extroverted. So I would pull up next to them and say, what are you doing here? Did you read the book? And they would say, how did you know that? Well, duh, there's no one else on the street and you're in a Lexus from Minnesota. <laughs> this was shortly after David Grant's nonfiction book was released. Carol and her husband, Joe, an Osage citizen, decided to use money from the nonprofit they run called the Fairfax Community Foundation to offer more information. We need to do something. So I, I basically created this exhibit, giving people a background of who the Osage people were, how we got here, what led up to the murders. Dr. Joe Connor said he wanted to tell people the why. What was the impact of those murders on this community afterwards? At my high school, I actually had us all read the book, and that's the first time I found out about the murders and what happened to the Osage people. Owen Hutchison is a young Osage man who works for Joe and Carol Connor and grew up in Fairfax. I think a part of that was Osages that do still live here didn't want to talk about it. I mean, it's a scary past and it's 
it's hard. And then the people who are non-Osage Zylopter either didn't know or they were complicit at the time. Shannon Shaw Duty is the editor of the Osage News and also grew up here. Her great aunt Liz was alive at the time and had friends and family who were murdered. They didn't want to talk about it and we never understood, but we do now. We understand it now. It was too painful. When the book hit the shelves in 2017, Carol remembers getting a very frosty response when she put an item in the paper she and Joe published called the Fairfax Chief, a newspaper that's been around since the 1920s. So small town newspapers, no one ever unsubscribes. They die, but they don't unsubscribe. But the week that we had David Grant at the Tall Chief Theater to sign books, I had 12 people unsubscribe from the newspaper. But a few years later, attitudes began to change. Martin Scorsese signed on to direct the movie, and that was exciting. And more importantly, his film crew actually listened to Osages about their concerns for the movie. Joe and Carol Connor wanted to take the momentum of the film and run with it. They're part of an effort to revitalize downtown Fairfax, including a historic theater built for the community after we're the murders. In front of, though, that's we're the most standing, important. Oh, we're standing right in front of the uh, Tall Chief Theater. Uh, Saving it is a passion project for Joe Connor. And we see this as an investment in the future of not only just Osages, but also the entire community. Osage citizen Danette Daniels is also trying to uplift the community. She was raised here. She's opening up a museum, gift, and coffee shop in a building she bought and renovated. I want to be part of bringing Fairfax back, uh, revitalizing Fairfax. She's hoping to give tours on the second floor of the building where the two doctors, the Schoen brothers, allegedly poisoned Osages. Oh my God. Look, so this is filmed <gasps> in the movie. This is filmed. They showed me the staircase. Yes. I asked Annette how she felt about offering tours to people about this terrible subject. Well, it's history. So it's just the truth. And people need to understand the truth. What does it feel like to own part of this history? Um, it feels good, especially as an Osage person. Yeah, taking it back. Taking back history. These Fairfax citizens see the movie as an opportunity to honor the victims of the murders and move forward. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Allison Herrera. Since Allison reported this story, Joe Connor passed away. waste. It's the largest category of trash going to landfills, according to an estimate from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Community composting operations are popping up in cities across the country, hoping to keep that waste out of landfills and return nutrients to the soil. But not all cities are welcoming them, especially when neighbors complain about bad smells and pests. Eva Tesfai reports on how cities in the Midwest are handling these new operations. On the urban farm herbivore in Kansas City, Missouri, Brooke Savaggio and Daniel Hurrier hold a scoop of what they call black gold. If you smell it, it just smells like fertility. You know? It smells, I mean, it just smells like really rich soil. Um, and, and when we put it out on the fields, it becomes really rich soil. <laughs> but not all their neighbors agree about the smell. While Savaggio says the compost is improving herbivore's yields, neighbors complain to the city about it being a nuisance. The city now says the operation requires a special use permit. 
Herrier says they checked with the city before expanding back in 2021, and he says the city should be working with them, not against them, to manage food waste sustainably. I want to create more compost hubs like this around the city and the metro area, and the cities and other municipalities around this area, but certainly the city of Kansas City, should be helping us do that. Food waste takes up space in landfills and produces methane, a powerful greenhouse gas that contributes to climate change. Sending less food waste to landfills can save municipalities money and reduce climate impacts, says Brenda Platt of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. But she says community composting can be a challenge for municipalities and cities. Local governments can either say, oh, you've got a problem, or they can help these operations that support their communities to overcome the obstacles. Platt says cities don't have updated zoning rules that address composting specifically. The Midwest is especially behind when it comes to supporting composting, says Jennifer Trent, a program manager at the Iowa Waste Reduction Center at the University of Northern Iowa. A lot of times it's a preconceived idea or notion that compost sites are foul places and that they won't be beneficial to the community. She says composting doesn't have to be a nuisance when done right, but she warns that one operation doing it wrong can ruin the practice for an entire region. If you have a compost site that's not complying with the regulations, enforce those laws. You know, don't allow them to continue until it's fixed. The U.S. Composting Council says having good zoning laws, enforcing them, and educating residents about composting helps make sure everything runs smoothly. When Ben Stanger wanted to start his business, Greenbox Compost, in Wisconsin, a lot of municipalities told him no. But he says Sun Prairie, just outside of Madison, was willing to change a zoning code for his business. It just happened to be that Sun Prairie, you know, really rolled out the welcome mat and, and helped us kind of work through this. Stanger is composting indoors with containers and using a slightly more technological approach to prevent problems like smells and pests. But the city is also doing its part by educating residents, says Jake King, the city's communications and diversity strategist. We really try to look at that public outreach and engagement so people know what we're doing and but most importantly, know why we're doing it. Back in Kansas City, Herbivore is appealing its violations and hoping that will result in larger changes to city rules. Assistant City Manager Melissa Kozakowicz says that city leadership is currently in discussions with Herbivore on how it can better support composting and urban farming. Kansas City and every other city in America has an opportunity to think about how it manages its waste in a different way. The challenge for cities is figuring out how to not only support composters, but also how to regulate them before the problems start. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Eva Tesfai. On four Fridays this fall, the city of Edwardsville explored a new concept, a bike bus. That's where students bike in a single line to and from school with an adult bus driver at the front and back. Will Bauer reports the Metro East community wants to keep it going next spring. Just after 7 a.m. on a cool fall morning, Edwardsville parent Jeff Manuel is giving instructions to five students. All right, guys, as a reminder, we'll go single file and uh, just try not to run into the person in front of you. Manuel is leading this Friday's bike bus to Lincoln Middle School on the west side of town. Are we ready? I'm going to go okay. all on my butt. No standing up, no <laughs> In about 15 minutes or so, the bike bus will have picked up one more student and be at school in time for 750 classes. 
Manuel says even if the number of students is relatively small, anytime a kid isn't sitting on a bus or a car is a win. He says those long lines of cars dropping off kids can also be a hassle for parents. If you replace that with a nice bicycle ride through a trail through the woods in the morning, like which is a for me, I, I think a really fun and kind of delightful way to get to school or get to work. Uh, that's just a, a win, I think. One of this morning's riders is Manuel's daughter, Natalie, a sixth grader. The first week I didn't come because I thought it would be kind of weird with my dad. But now I'm doing it and it actually is pretty fun. She says the trip home from school, yes, on a Friday, is her favorite part because it's a good way to start the weekend. And this bike bus is just one of two in Edwardsville this fall. The other runs to Liberty Middle School on the other side of town. It's driven by Jason Stacy, who sits on the city's Bicycle and Pedestrian Advisory Committee. It's uh, really just introducing students to the possibilities of the bicycle as a transportation device. That's also fun. Stacy himself is an avid biker. He and the committee have been looking for ways to get more people in Edwardsville using Madison County's extensive trail network, like the bike bus. And I think people are starting to discover that for short distances in crowded places, cars can actually be pretty inconvenient. The bike bus rides are done for now, but they'll come back in the spring. And when they do, Stacy says they'll plan to add some upper elementary students to the routes. We think they're going to be old enough to be pretty good riders. And uh, there might be a little more trepidation at that age about riding on their own. They may not know how to get there. And, uh, of course, we always invite parents to ride with us. Stacy says by no means did he come up with this idea. He read about successful efforts in bigger cities across the country. One of the more successful ventures came from a Portland, Oregon physical education teacher, Sam Balto. We went from 75 kids to 125, 130. Um, in a few short weeks, and then the following school year, in the fall, we went up to 190 kids. In Balto's videos posted online, the massive group of kids take up the entire street. He says he was looking for other ways to get students active and outside. doesn't have to be a huge group like in my videos. It can uh, just be a couple families agreeing to meet at a certain spot and riding together. Back at Liberty Middle School in Edwardsville, Manuel's group has made it to the bike racks. The kids lock up their bikes, and the bus drivers figure out who is making the trip home. Natalie and her friends Liam Catlin and Evan Becker are still hanging around. How'd it go? It was pretty good. We all stayed in a single file line, mostly. Um, but we kept trying to pass each other. It was kind of like a race that time, so it wasn't as good as the other times or as safe. But it was still pretty fun. It was definitely more fun because it was a race. You said mostly. Who, who's the culprit? Me. <laughs> what? Me. Can't forget about me. And oh, why, why, why? I tried to get and her. So and her. All of us. She, she's the worst. It's safe so to say these middle schoolers enjoyed their bike ride, or maybe bike race, to school on this Friday morning. And they'll look forward to more of them come springtime. In Edwardsville, I'm Will Bauer. The Western Illinois University Department of Art and Design is hosting an exhibit of paintings that document crimes against humanity. Rich Egger tells us about it. The paintings are recreations of photographs taken by a person known only as Caesar. The former medical photographer for the Syrian government risked his own life 
by making tens of thousands of copies of photos of men, women, and children who were tortured to death in prisons run by Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's regime. Caesar then smuggled out the images a decade ago to show the atrocities to the world. Mark Nelson of Kawani is the artist who recreates those photos as paintings. Why does he do it? Part of it is personal. Part of it is I don't want to simply scroll by these images. I don't want to just see them and move to the next thing and move to the next thing. I want to sit with the image. As horrible as it is, I want to sit with it. And the process of art making is pretty slow. You're using, using charcoal, using oil, slow drying paint. And that forces you to sit with that image and really see it. Um, unbeknownst to me at the time, the images I was making were useful also to journalists because they could share them and it, they wouldn't be blocked by um, the algorithm for like censoring images because um, at the time I was making images that were a little bit more um, abstracted with charcoal and ink and stuff like that. And so they were kind of serving a function. So not only was it a personal reaction to these images that I, I needed to, I felt a need to kind of do this, uh, to draw them as almost like a witness. In a strange way, I, was, I felt like I was kind of witnessing, I was literally witnessing these photos. So I thought like, I need to document that I'm witnessing this. And using something like paint and, and traditional materials, slow process. So you have to meditate on what you're looking at. How difficult is that to meditate on these types of images? For me, it's almost more difficult to not look, to go by them. I feel a sense of, um, I guess, for lack of a better term, guilt. I just feel a sense of um, sorrow and anguish for the person. And I feel like when I'm actually making the artwork, um, I'm processing that and also witnessing for them in a, in a strange sense. Um, it's not a snap of a, a, a lens. It's someone who's sitting there for hours um, looking at eyebrows and the particular way a lip is or something like that. That, that person whose life was stolen, that was part of their face and their life. Do you think the world has stopped paying attention to what's happening in Syria? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's just such a, uh, such a stream of horrific things that are happening. And again, with, with the internet, um, people are, they call it, what do they call it, um, fatigue. I mean, people say they're fatigued by these images. Even in Ukraine, people are already starting, to, oh, is that still happening? Is there still a war in Ukraine? I hear that all the time. So there's a real sense of that, and that's one of the reasons I'm trying to make these images, because I don't, I don't feel that fatigue, and I don't want there to be that fatigue, because for things this awful, there shouldn't be a, oh, I feel bad, and then, okay, what's the next thing? But there is a, I don't blame people because there's such a glut of horrors that is happening environmentally um, and, and war crimes all over the world. Artist Mark Nelson's exhibit is called The Caesar Files, War Crimes in the Digital Age. It'll remain on display in the Annex Gallery at Western Illinois University through November 17th, and Nelson says he also shares the images through social media. Rich Egger reporting. Are women treated differently by health care providers? We'll discuss that in just a moment on Statewide. You're listening to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. The University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign Communications professor Shari Thompson has been studying how women communicate with their health care providers. 
Thompson says her study shows women often face difficulty expressing to doctors the existence and severity of medical conditions because of implicit bias. She spoke with Maureen McKinney. I think the sort of performance of pain or expectations for how we talk about our pain when we visit medical professionals is very gendered. I mean, there's emotional elements, there's an expectation to be rational. So to just give the facts and to talk about it in sort of very measurable terms. Um, But we know that there's a significant gender bias in medicine um, and that there are false beliefs that um, women are sort of um, over-emotional and not rational. um, And that works against them um, sort of from the outset. Is there a common denominator among women who find that they're not being taken seriously? I would say in the studies that I've done, I mean, they all identify as women and we've asked for those who feel like they've been dismissed. Um, So I suppose that is one common denominator. I, I hesitate to say that there's anything else unilateral or common among every woman. So I can't, I can say though from research that I've done that there are um, characteristics or their identities or their health issues that tend to be more prominent. So for example, women tend to suffer more from health conditions that are not visible. So they're not readily apparent. Um, perhaps there's, they're not measurable, um, like chronic pain or autoimmune diseases. Um, there's no diagnostic testing for them. And so that uncertainty creates or is a knowledge gap where um, often physicians, I think, sometimes rely on heuristics that they have. Um, and sometimes those heuristics are are faulty or stereotypical. Um, so um, again, I think um, for a lot of women, they have non-visible health conditions that are chronic, so they're not curable and they sort of last over time. Um, They're not well understood by medicine. And, um, you know, I think it's important to also recognize that there's a difference between doubting a woman um, that she has pain. So that's sort of an existence thing. So you have pain, you don't have pain, or you have this issue, you don't have this issue. Um, Women can be be believed for something very visible or not visible, but someone may doubt or a health provider may doubt the severity. So they may say, oh, you can't be in that much pain or it really can't be that bad. Um, And so I think um, some women are just dismissed outright and and they're like, that's not really happening. Um, And some women may experience um, doubt of the sort of severity of what they're they're encountering. What? can women themselves do to make them feel credible to the healthcare provider? It's very important to me to help equip women with the sort of communication tools or strategies um, to combat um, health dismissal, particularly in medicine. I can tell you what women say they do and what's often works for them or at least provides them with the support in the moment. I can also share with you a kind of a subset of strategies that I would call more advocacy strategies that if women feel comfortable and have the resources that they can also engage. So a lot of women in the research I've done talk about how they always bring someone with them to medical appointments. The person is an advocate for them. Um, they, they confirm their claims. Um, they all, you know, they could talk to the doctor themselves. So they talk about bringing someone. <clears throat> they also talk about bringing evidence. If women feel like they're not going to be taken seriously just by their word, then they bring in evidence, um, whether it's existing medical records, maybe it's a diary of symptoms that they've kept, 
um, because such sort of evidence fits within a biomedical or a medical understanding of um, their symptoms and may be taken more seriously. And a lot of women don't outright challenge their doctor if they disagree, but they will face save by asking questions. So if a doctor recommends something or um, says something to them and they're not sure or they feel like they're being dismissed, they may say like, can you explain to me your clinical reasoning or why you think that? Or um, why would you recommend that? So it's it's more of like a uh, an ask for information. A second set of strategies, I guess, is a little um, more on the advocacy side in terms of is more more explicitly about sort of pushing back. And so um, some women can disagree with their providers and say, you know, from the reading that I've done, I don't know if that's the best thing for me. Can we talk about alternatives? Women can explicitly state their needs and values often from the outset of the appointment. Um, this sets the tone for the appointment and lets the provider know up front, like, hey, this is what's important to me and what I want to keep in mind for the rest of our visit together. They also can ask doctors, um, kind of flip the perspective, and, and if they feel like the doctor is not taking them seriously, they can say, um, you know, my health is really important to me, and I'd really love to know if you were in my position, what would you want to happen, or what would you recommend? And so that kind of, um, in some ways, forces the doctor to perspective take. And then finally, if, if doctors are not taking women seriously, switch doctors, um, if you can, um, I know that often it takes a long time to get into doctors and health coverage, coverage doesn't sometimes allow for switching of doctors, at least easily. Um, but if a doctor is not treating you well, switch doctors. Is there a, a racial component or other demographic factors that are involved if women are feeling dismissed about their medical concerns? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's um well documented um that uh there's an intersectional component to women's health dismissal. So we know that there's a strong racial bias in medicine, um, particularly when it comes to pain. Um, for example, studies document how um black people um are thought to have thicker skin and feel less pain um than white folks. Um and um uh, more research, I think, is needed on other racial groups, uh, but that is probably the most um, frequent, frequently mentioned um, research finding in terms of racial bias. Um, but racial bias and gender bias intersect with other things like class um, and stereotypes that uh, we all have, and doctors are not immune to this, um, about um, you, people who use social programs or people who are drug-seeking or med-seeking, as they say. I think um, gender and race um, intersect with other both visible and non-visible markers of identity. Visible things might be like body size. So there's a pretty large literature talking about um, fat shaming in medicine um, and how health issues, particularly for women, are often dismissed as sort of, uh, well, you just need to lose weight. Um, to more non-visible things, like perhaps non-visible disabilities um, or health literacy um, and sexuality. Is there anything I didn't ask you think we should talk about? I guess I will leave by saying um, one of my goals as a researcher and a human in the world um, and with the platform I have is to help patients advocate for themselves and also help physicians be better communicators. I really want to bridge this 
chasm that is real and perceived between patients and providers um, because providers want to help people and people want relief and help. And so um, my goal is not only to draw attention to um, bias and potential discrimination um, in healthcare, particularly among women and intersections therein, um, but also help equip patients and, and physicians with the tools they need. So um, I do that by um, creating trainings for physicians um, as, as well as patients so that we can um, help them both interact with one another in ways that cultivate um, respect and trust um, and a shared understanding towards better health and wellness. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, drawing attention to the issues compels me to also think about what potential solutions could be um, and to help people be, um, at least for physicians, the best physicians that they can be. Um, and in working with physicians, I think a lot of them recognize and want to be better. That's the University of Illinois Communications professor Shari Thompson. Her study looks into women's communication with healthcare providers. Veterans Day is this weekend. The state of Illinois is looking to honor vets. Secretary of State Alexei Janulius is asking veterans and their families to share mementos from their service time with the Illinois Veterans History Project. He says the items shared will be permanently added to the Illinois Digital Archive. These records allow those of us in civilian life to better understand the full experience of what our Illinois veterans faced during wartime, peacekeeping missions, and even at times of peace in the world. Anything from letters and photographs to military documents are welcome, and you can submit to the collection by filling out an Illinois Patriot information form. You can find that at the Illinois Secretary of State's website. Well, as the seasons change, you might be thinking about updating your wardrobe with the latest fall and winter trends. But many teenagers are rejecting fast fashion. They're turning to thrift shops for cheaper and more sustainable options. Nareda Moreno stopped by a Chicago thrift store to hear why some students are embracing secondhand clothes. Village Discount Outlet would like to welcome the Von Steuben Thrifting Group. Two dozen teens descended on the Albany Park store to hunt for bargains. It's a 10-minute walk from Von Steuben, a Chicago public high school. The thrift club is stopping by for its first field trip of the year. I've been thrifting my whole life. We didn't have the money for conventional retail stores. So my dad would take me and my siblings here. That's Philip Tran, president of the Von Steuben Thrift Club. He started the group last year with some friends. We try to raise awareness about sustainable fashion and mostly the dangers of fast fashion. He's talking about clothes that have been mass produced at a low cost to take advantage of trends. Philip says Gen Z is doing things a little differently. They're more conscious of their carbon footprint and want to save money. I can't, I can't lie, I used to be embarrassed of it, but I see, at least now, it's become a lot more socially acceptable and popular. But thrift shops can be intimidating and kind of overwhelming, especially if you don't know what to look for. Two students who are new to this join the club to learn the ropes. I have not gone thrifting that much. I wanted to know like, oh, what like looks good and what like is suitable for me. For me, whenever I'm looking at clothes, I find something that looks like really cool, but then it's not in my size. So I just want to maybe find like better ways to thrift. Sophomore Dina Sun says you have to treat it like a treasure hunt. You know, it takes a little time, but in the end of the day, it's going to be so worth it because you put your own time into that. 
The 15-year-old says thrifting is a great way to experiment with your fashion sense. She relies on a tailor to get the perfect fit. I always go to the men's section and they have like really nice like oversized pants and like at one point I even found like women's pants up there like bootcut. They were so nice. They were Michael Kors. Oh my gosh. Um, They're so nice. Another way the club upcycles is through clothing swaps. Whatever is left over gets donated to charity. Teacher April Tondelli helps guide students. Especially if I thrift Nikes or something that they don't think, they don't expect to be thrifted, you know, they're really excited and it, you know, starts a big conversation. Today she's shopping for books while the students browse the clothing racks. Tondelli is somewhat of a thrifting expert. Like mending clothes, I think, is a really good skill. A lot of clothes at the thrift shop might just be missing a button or like small holes in sweaters are really easy to fix. Tondelli also started a thrifting account on Instagram to try to spread the word among people her age. She says teens tend to be more open about it. I think people sometimes think thrifting is like for Halloween outfits or something for a costume party, but like all of my just sort of regular work clothes are all thrifted. So just sort of putting that out there that you can really thrift for your everyday life. Thrifting is taking off at several Chicago schools. The thrift club at Jones College Prep meets every other Thursday and takes the CTA to different shops across the city. And Hampton Elementary School has a new after-school fashion club where kids are learning how to retrofit clothes. But it's not exactly a new phenomenon. Tom Foley works for the Village Discount Outlet chain. It's been in business for over 60 years, but he says thrifting is always changing. These days, there's such a wide variety of styles and anything goes. It's very eclectic, very cool when you see some of the things that people put together. Back at the Village Discount on Lawrence, Von Steuben students receive a 50% discount during their trip. Club members also have other thrift shops they recommend. The unique on Kimball and Elston is one of my favorites. It's because it's, it's convenient and they, have like, they, just, they just have really nice clothes. And club president Philip Tran shares tips for his classmates. You need to be thorough. You need to check every aisle, go through every rack, every piece of clothing, even the floor sometimes, because <laughs> people will drop stuff. Above all, he says, patience is key. Nereida Moreno, WBEZ News. all the time we have for statewide this week join us again next time we'll be back with more reports and conversations from in and around illinois find our shows through the station's website and at nprillinois.org and you can check us out where you get your podcasts Crawford Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois Public Radio stations.